Campbell R. Harvey is a professor of finance at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research. He served as president of the American Finance Association in 2016. Today, he discusses the most pressing economic decisions facing America in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, what we can learn from the responses of other countries, and how his original economic forecasts have changed as the crisis has progressed. Let's listen in. This uh, virus has hit the Northeast, the New York area, disproportionately. Um, half the U.S. deaths are in the New York area, uh, a high percentage of the cases. Um, that seems to be driving our national response. Um, and yet, when you look at this disease, not just in, you know, in the United States or in the world, there are very different um, responses or, or very different patterns playing out based on density, age, health systems, etc. How can we better reflect that? into our policymaking um, in a more structured way so that rather than applying, you know, um, it's kind of we're going to uh, greatest, I don't know, lowest common denominator or greatest common denominator, but, you know, harshest cure as required by most hard hit area being applied everywhere. How can we become more nuanced in that? What recommendations would you have and how do we take that back to policymakers from our own group? Sure. So obviously uh, an important question. Um, so what's interesting about this crisis um, is that you get to see the future from other countries. So um, we saw what happened in China. We saw what happened in Korea. We saw what happened in Italy. So if you're kind of late, um, you get to learn from uh, the experience of other countries. And, and that's important. In addition, there's a, a diversity of different approaches in different countries. So Korea's got its own approach. Sweden is in the press a lot because their approach is effectively protect the most vulnerable, uh, the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions, but then uh, basically go towards herd uh, immunity. So, and they think that they're going to achieve that in a couple of weeks. So it's pretty rough right now, but uh, in a couple of weeks, they, they think they're uh, going to be there. So the U.S. is interesting because it's uh, a very large country and it's like a bunch of mini countries. Uh, and you're exactly right, where you've got a high concentration, uh, a high density uh, in New York City, and it got hit uh, the worst. And it also uh, is vulnerable in terms of people coming in for travel. So the spreaders um, kind of started off in New York. So I think that, uh, again, uh, people were extrapolating the exponential growth that we saw. Uh, people were not schooled that uh, in standard epidemiology, you see an exponential curve, but then it starts to flatten. Um, we did begin to change our vocabulary to kind of flattening the curve in various different ways uh, to do that. Um, and I think that initially people um, didn't uh, think about the basic stuff that you could do uh, to kind of mitigate uh, the spread. So what I think will happen fairly soon, um, we will 
slowly uh, but surely uh, start uh, to open our economy up. We need, of course, we need testing. So we need really this antibody testing is super important. Uh, the younger people, I, I feel like really bad for them as well as the older people because the, the, the risk is so trivial for a younger person that this is no different than a regular flu, yet they're locked up uh, and our economy is bleeding as a result. So I think that the response is not just one response. Hopefully this makes sense to you. So it's not just a response for New York City. It's not just a response for Houston. It, it's gotta be um, depending upon the particular factors in, um, in different areas. So there, there's some basic stuff that's common, but the response needs to be catered to the particular demographics, the density, um, all of the issues that um, cause diversity. And, and I think that's the best thing to do. But um, I originally forecast that the second quarter was going to be incredibly ugly, uh, the third quarter also, and then we begin returning to normal in the fourth quarter. I'm actually thinking revising that forecast because I think that uh, given that we know now that this is not as serious as we initially thought, that there will be um, the will from the people to uh, basically stop this, uh, this lockdown, this extreme lockdown. And I think our policymakers also are beginning to realize the cost of the lockdown is massive. As I said, we could be essentially um, losing all of the growth that we had over the last uh, decade. So that's pretty substantial. And then number two, and number two is very important. We are borrowing to pay for the short term. So approximately $3 trillion. Hmm. That needs to be paid back. So we are borrowing from the future. So, so I think that at some point, we need to stop the bleeding. Great. It's uh, Gene Sykes from Los Angeles. And thanks very much for, for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, if I go back to your comment about the serology studies, I've uh, tracked these pretty closely. I'm a Stanford trustee and Stanford had something to do with the Santa Clara study. Uh, and then there was the Los Angeles study, then the New York study. All of these tended to say the same things, but many of the scientists and medical professionals who've had access to those studies believe the studies were not scientifically valid, have a lot of um, uh, hesitation to accept the conclusions and if you push them and say is a low death rate something we should be uh, more comfortable with, uh, I, I must say every time I've asked that question of anybody in, in a high level science or, or a medical professional uh, category, their response has always been, we, we should not underestimate just how much more uh, challenging this virus is than the seasonal flu. And it would be a mistake for us to conflate uh, the two and think that one is the same as the other. We don't have treatments for this. We have treatments for the seasonal flu and we understand it. And because we don't have treatments for this, the opportunity for this to get out of hand is something that we are very afraid of. So I think that fear has driven a lot of the policy response, which in this country has been, uh, it's not been totally uniform, but it's been uh, uh, the default, right? And the question I have for you is how, how quickly do you see the leaders of the scientific and 
public health communities coming to a point where they can embrace the conclusions that you're observing by virtue of the serology tests and that this is not as threatening as we may have thought it was and therefore we got to take our response and uh, adjust it somewhat because I think that's exceedingly important but it's still not the accepted uh, point of view. Sure, um, great question. Um, so first on the serology studies, um, I think you need to also factor in the European studies and there's plenty of them. Um, the Santa Clara uh, study, the Stanford study, um, in my opinion was flawed. The 55 times um, was not credible and there were statistical issues very closely related to my research actually. So, um, but nevertheless, the message of that study, even if we haircut the 55 to 10, and that's what the initial New York study uh, showed, well, that's still like an order of magnitude. That's a big deal. And you're right, the New York study wasn't totally random because they were sampling people at a grocery store and maybe that's a select group of people that are actually going out to the grocery store. The one that was released today was much more scientific. And again, there's plenty of studies that are out there. And uh, even if some of them are biased, they're all saying the same thing. And that is that there's a very large number of people that are asymptomatic that have had this and um, and there's other issues, of course, whether they could get it again um, and, and, and things like that. But the point is that statistically, the, the rate of uh, morbidity is much lower than we initially thought. That is the point. Is this serious? Of course it is. And it's especially serious for people with pre-existing or older people. For younger people, this is like the flu. Um, so in terms of um, the mortality rates. So I understand um, the scientists and I understand the policymakers because this is the trade-off and it's a very tough trade-off. Um, and, and it's difficult to talk about, but policymakers absolutely have to talk about it. So you lessen the restrictions and then suppose there is um, a resurgence and you actually voted for something that caused 10,000 deaths. That's pretty tough, okay? And on the other side, well, if you uh, lessen the, um, the lockdown, then that re-energizes the economy. And um, that's also a positive. That's a positive for health. Um, it's a positive, especially for mental health. So it's this trade-off of, uh, how much economic pain do you want to give up um, or do you want to take some risk? And the risk is very asymmetric. That's the message the, that when you make that tough decision and it actually does cause uh, death, um, you feel really bad and um, ex post uh, people criticize you. Got it. And that's very, very tough. That's great. We've got a bunch of questions for you. You're getting a lot of interest. Maxine Clark, I now think we can hear you now. So Maxine wants us to know, um, relative to retail, we furloughed and let people go. Travel business and hotels are the same. I'm in the restaurant business. I, I don't have a, a business that isn't uh, better than negative 50%. Um, uh, we've learned to do 
uh, as businesses, we've learned to do more with less. Everybody's on Zoom. Nobody's traveling. How the heck are we going to get to a place where we rehire past furloughed people, uh, especially given all the limits that, that we put on? Um, what about universities? And also, what about people over 60, like me, going back to work running companies and universities? That's yeah, a few questions so, in there. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and it is true. Um, if you look at restaurants, bars, retail, that's 30 million people that are employed in that, uh, those sectors. Yeah. And if you expand it to other industries that are at risk, um, I calculated about 37 million people uh, in at-risk industries. So for me to see a jump of 26 million in unemployment, that was basically what was expected. And the financial markets weren't surprised either. Um, but it is different uh, because uh, people are furloughed. So in the global financial crisis, you lost your job at Lehman Brothers. You're not going back there because they're, they're gone. Um, or Bear Stearns or you know, Wachovia. So this is, um, is different because uh, people actually expect to go back. And, and again, this is feasible if we can restart, right? So um, for restaurants, it's going to be especially painful because the restart will be, uh, you won't have the same density in the restaurant. So it's going to be really hard, uh, if not impossible, uh, to make any money in actually doing that. But what you're doing is potentially covering your fixed costs until we're at the point we where we can return to the regular density. So that's that's the key. So um, for the restaurant um, to be back to normal, then we need uh, one of two things. We need a pharmacological uh, solution that decreases the uh, fatality rate. So you take once you get it, you mitigate the symptoms, something like Tamiflu. Um, and uh, the other thing, of course, is vaccine. So if it's true that we have a vaccine in the fourth quarter, then it's back to business as usual. It is a sudden start. So um, I think I've called this uh, uh, recession the great compression. So we have a lot of pain very quickly but there's the possibility with a biological solution to uh, return to near where we were. And I want to emphasize the word near uh, because for some companies, there's pent up demand um, that you need stuff that you didn't get and you'll go on a binge. But for a restaurant or a bar, well, even though you might go there once a week to your favorite restaurant, you're not going to make up for it by going every day, uh, maybe twice a day. So that's gone. Um, so, so you need to take that uh, into, into account. So we've lost some income. Uh, people have gone into debt. Our government has gone into debt. And we've also lost wealth um, in terms of stock valuations and things like that. I have a question. Why does this, you know, we've, we've had this economic compression as you refer to it, and yet the stock market has bounced two thirds of the way back from the bottom. How do you explain that? So the stock market is uh, reflecting the future. And I think that initially the stock market uh, took uh, a big hit and there's 
a number of reasons for that. And one was it was at an all-time high on February the 19th. There was a lot of room for it to actually go down. Uh, I think what the stock market is, what people are betting on is exactly what I'm saying. And that is that we're going to have pain in the short term, but we're going to bounce. We're going to bounce really hard back. So um, that's what the stock market is suggesting. And, and again, all of this news, notice the narrative is different today than even last week. We're talking about good news, right? So I'm, I'm listing all the good news and I'm hard pressed um, to list the bad news right now. So, so everything in, in terms of the metrics that I'm looking at are improving. And again, the stock market is not about the past. It is about the future. Great. Thank you. Barb Grogan? Um, I'd like to talk to you about that $3 trillion worth of debt. And by, by the way, Ron's right. You are the first person who I'm going to leave this phone call feeling better instead of worse. <laughs> so I want to thank you personally for that. But you talked about our, our $3 trillion that we're going to need to pay back. First of all, I'd like to know, what's the impact of that? in your prognosis for the next, the near term, and what's the prognosis for the long term, and how do we pay it back? So um, let me just clarify, um, the three trillion is simply a result of the, the measures, the kind of, um, if you want to call them stimulus measures, that ha have been passed by Congress. Okay, the, the actual amount of debt is much higher because uh, government revenues are down, the deficit will go up uh, as, a, as a result. So it's much more um, than $3 trillion. So the question is, well, how do we pay that back? And again, I think it's, it's unfortunate that we were very aggressive in the global financial crisis and providing uh, a number of packages that helped uh, businesses and individuals and after that crisis, we should have been paying that back. But no, we had 10 years of growth, an unprecedented period. So it, the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, measures the lengths of recoveries. And this one was longer um, than any period back to the 1850s. Yet every single year, we ran deficits. So... Um, it's kind of interesting because I look at the different countries and their different responses. The U.S. Is, has been pretty aggressive, um, putting about 12% of their GDP in terms of measures to help um, individuals and, and businesses. Germany did 20%. And how could they do that? Well, um, they were much more frugal and the size of their debt a lot smaller so that they could hit this a lot harder. Um, so, so again, we're constrained uh, somewhat given the amount of debt that we already have, but the US has got a number of advantages. Uh, number one advantage, it's the growth engine of the world economy. It is the innovation engine of the world economy and the US dollar is the reserve currency. So you've got all of that uh, together. Um, but. I worry that it's just really difficult to get policymakers um, in the mindset of paying back that debt. And uh, unfortunately, um, there's a mismatch of horizon. 
what we're doing effectively is moving this obligation to a future generation. So our children, our grandchildren will have to pay. And either they pay in terms of higher taxes or they pay in terms of inflation. Uh, inflation, unfortunately, is very regressive. Uh, the people that are hit are the people that really can't afford it. But um, the specter of inflation is something that we need to think about, given what we've done. All right. I know Andrew Brickman has a question, and then we'll follow up with Andrew Fishman. Yeah. Um, thank you, Professor. Uh, that's a good segue to my question, which was on inflation. I'm interested in your thoughts. Um, on what the future inflation picture looks like. We've, we've actually struggled to get any inflation in the U.S. for some period of time. And while we want some, it's, it can be fairly negative if it gets too large. I'm, I'm wondering, given all this, what you think that picture looks like um, going forward? So this is, this is an issue I've thought about a lot. So in... The global financial crisis, we had this innovation called quantitative easing, which is effectively uh, the printing of money. So treasure bonds are bought by the Fed. So it's just money printing. And people were very worried that that would lead to inflation. So the basic idea is, is fairly simple. And it's good to think about this idea of a helicopter drop which we've heard, but let me kind of explain it. That suppose there was a helicopter drop where everybody just got a pile of cash. And you would think that that would be inflationary, but it depends. And it depends on what people do with it. If you took that cash from the sky and put it under your mattress, there's no impact. And that's exactly what happened in the global financial crisis where the extra money was put by the banks back to the Federal Reserve. So the banks are required to have a certain amount of reserves with the Fed, but all of a sudden they had excess reserves. So a, a huge amount of excess reserves. This was the equivalent of cash under the mattress. And um, people essentially extrapolate from that experience saying, oh, well, we did QE in the global financial crisis and oh, we didn't have any inflation. Indeed, the inflation is under control and it's 2% or less than 2%. So we can do that again. So we've got a track record, but it's an observation of one. So yes, it's true that the Fed balance sheet exploded, went to $4 trillion, but since 2017, they were reducing the size of the balance sheet. So they had a plan to get back uh, to normal. This, what we're experiencing now is, I'm not sure we can extrapolate so simply. So going from 4 trillion to 8 trillion potentially in terms of the balance sheet. We've uh, heard the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve said there's no limit to the QE. And that sounds like the ECB uh, um, former governor, uh, what, um, what he said during um, the uh, European kind of bond crisis. So, uh, I think that inflation is a real a risk. Indeed, I think that's part of the reason that people in the bond market decided that uh, the U.S. bonds, while traditionally safe haven, are no longer a safe haven. And let me explain why. 
So the U.S. is the safest country in the world, the U.S. 10-year bond, uh, the safest bond in the world. But when you see um, that bond's interest rate go so low to 0.4%, the 30-year bond was 0.9% at some point, people holding those bonds say, oh, this is risky because if the rates go up, even by 1%, I'm going to be hammered. If you own the 30-year bond, and the rates go up by 1%, you lose 20% of the value of the bond. So then people start to pile out of the bonds into the treasury bills or, or just pure cash. And then you get this crazy situation where the rates um, go negative. We've seen that already. So do we want the Japan scenario where in Japan, um, the, the Bank of Japan buys all of the bonds? There's no market for uh, their government bonds. It's gone. The JGB market is gone. Do we want negative interest rates? In, in Denmark, you can get a mortgage where you're paid. You're paid every month to take that mortgage out. Does that make sense? Not to me. So it's really distortionary. I was actually critical of the Fed initially reducing rates from 1.5 to 1%. That was the first thing that they did. And I said, oh, no, um, they're playing the same uh, move that they did in the global financial crisis, except, oh, by the way, in the global financial crisis, the first cut of 50 basis points came when rates were 5.25%. So 1.5 is a low rate. That's the inflation rate. So it's effectively zero in real terms. So to take it to one didn't make any sense. Take it to zero made less sense. And we run the risk of this a really bad thing in economics called a liquidity trap. And that's when people just don't want to buy bonds and it's really difficult for businesses to raise capital uh, as a result. You've got this really uh, strong distortion. So I think our policymakers need to get us out of this zero or incredibly low uh, interest rates uh, pretty quickly. We need to somehow have a plan uh, to pay down and we need to do everything in a way that minimizes the risk of a spike in inflation. We've seen it before. Come on. Um, we've, most of us uh, have lived through uh, the early 1980s when inflation was out of control. Uh, we don't want to go back there. So uh, there's a lot to be done, but the inflation risk should not be discounted, even though today inflation is negative. So you see prices going down. You see oil going you know, to negative. Um, uh, price. So don't be fooled by that. What we're talking about is inflation in the longer term. Got Andrew Fishman, I know you've been waiting. No, no worries. Thank you. So uh, you're a bit optimistic in a couple of places. Uh, so I'm curious, if you look at the what's happened overseas, which you, you earlier said is a good guidance uh, for us, the countries are not really opening up. China's not really opening up. Hong Kong's not really opening up. Singapore is not really opening up as they get second waves. What gives you confidence that A, we won't have second waves, B, even if we start to open, that opening means something very, very different than going back to normal. And in an economy that's very service sector oriented and very consumer driven, aren't the longer term repercussions much more serious than you may perhaps think? Yeah, so uh, in, in my work, um, it's all about forecasting. And uh, in terms of what I do for my students, I try to give them a view of the future. 
in terms of my outside work with investment management firms, they want to forecast. So this is my forecast. It's not optimistic. It's not pessimistic. It's my forecast. Uh, is, it, um, is it going to be accurate? Well, we'll have to see. Um, but I'm looking at the data and, and I've got a forecast. So I emphasize, and I said this, and let me say it again, that uh, this is not going to be the snap of the fingers. We're back to where we were. Okay, so uh, let me be very clear on that. And uh, this will be gradual. So uh, we can rule out the V-shaped recovery. So I don't think that's going to happen. But I also don't think the L-shaped recovery is going to happen. And that's basically a very long, drawn-out, slow uh, recovery. I think it's going to be more like um, a skinny U-shape. And so will be some adjustment time. And we talked about restaurants as a good example of adjustment. They can't go back to full capacity, even if people want to go uh, to that restaurant. There will be a time of adjustment. However, all of this will be mitigated by biological factors. So if we do have a pharmacological solution that reduces the fatality rate in the fall, then that's going to be very helpful because um, that effectively reduces the fatality rate even more. If we've got a vaccine, um, and I was thinking we would have a vaccine by the first quarter of 21, but the talk today is that that is going to be fast-tracked. The UK, very aggressive, they uh, essentially are willing to produce vaccine in advance of the trial. And this is very interesting. So they will produce it knowing that if the trial doesn't work, they throw it out. And I think it's a very good idea. So, and you can expand that idea to, let's say, had four candidate vaccines, you produce all four. And if only one works, then you discard the other three. So that's the sort of uh, kind of foresight that we need uh, in terms of our, our policy uh, makers. So to your question very specifically, it depends on the particular sector that you're in, in terms of how fast you can return to normal. And I'm not naive to think that this is the snap of the finger uh, sort of uh, back to, to normal. It will take a while. Yes, there will be some damage. Um, however, I do think that our policymakers have been innovative and recognize that this crisis was different than other crises and have been very aggressive in, um, in helping small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, these businesses employ 49% of the workforce and account for 64% of employment growth. And it would be a structural issue if we let a large number of these businesses go under. High quality businesses going under, that will affect growth in the future. So the answer to your question is the typical economist's um, answer, it depends. Um, and it depends upon the sector, and it depends upon the sort of biological uh, progress that we make. Okay, let's go to Bill Galston. Always good questions. Thanks. Uh, I think we're, we're all grateful for a shot of confidence. Uh, let, me, let me tell you why I find it a little harder to reach your level of confidence than than you do. Uh, first of all, there's an analytical question. If the measures that we've taken over the past two months 
to flatten the curve and begin the downward trend are responsible for that flattening, then why wouldn't the lines begin to move back up as we strip away some of some of these some of these restrictions? So that's question number number one. Question number two to you as a forecaster. Uh, I have been struck as I talk to people from various walks of life about the the jolt to confidence, not just to businesses, but to individuals. The people I talk to will not rush to go back to restaurants, to bars, to highly populated places, even if they're permitted to. And even if those places are permitted to reopen, uh, this is not going to be field of dreams economics where they come if you open it. There is going to be, I think, a substantial hesitation to return to life as, as normal, particularly among people of a certain age like mine and people who understand that they have underlying conditions that render them particularly vulnerable. And that is a lot of people, not just old people. So why the confidence? So again, um, I'm a forecaster. And uh, yes, I do have some confidence around my forecast, but um, the band is a sizable <laughs> uh, length. So, and I could be wrong. Um, and uh, I hope I'm not. So we, let me address we all the questions. Uh, let me address your questions. So, yeah. so number one, it's not going to be back to normal in terms of uh, the way that people interact. Um, there will still be um, some steps. Like we're, for example, even before uh, this uh, pandemic, I'm not keen on shaking my students' hands when they come into my office. I just don't do that because if I get sick, it's really going to be difficult to teach. So I think that people will be that will change their behavior. Uh, but that there will be things that are different and two things are really important. So the number one thing is the movement towards um, the herd immunity. Okay, so what's different in the fall will be potentially many more people will have had it and they didn't even know it. So, so that means that the infection rate actually uh, decreases. Uh, that's uh, number one. Uh, number two is testing. So that's going to be different. So we don't have the tests right now. And that's been an issue. Uh, we had a head start, um, but, uh, but and, and look, uh, no country uh, really got this right. Uh, we don't have enough tests. If we have the tests, um, then uh, I think that that could uh, mitigate the possibility of uh, a big resurgence. Um, the third issue is likely uh, by the fall, we'll have some sort of pharmacological uh, solution to mitigate um, the symptoms. So, so you put all that together, and I think that in the fall, we'll begin to get back to where we were, but it's not going to be immediate and things will be different. I totally agree with you. On your second point, which is a really important point, um, this uh, potentially has changed people's behavior. So I am pretty confident that the younger people 
um, it really hasn't changed their behavior. And they're really upset that they have to be isolated and uh, it's their, their behavior is going to be as it was. But you are correct. If you're at risk, um, that will change your behavior. And I totally agree with you. That's an important segment of our economy. And um, that, uh, that will be muted. So we're not going back to exactly where we were. And again, there's multiple reasons for that. Um, one reason, as you mentioned, is that certain segments, certain demographic uh, will change their behavior. Um, but there's other reasons. Um, one reason is that people have gone into debt. So that's going to change their behavior because they need to pay that debt back. Now I'm talking about personal debt, credit card debt, uh, bank debt, and things like that. So, uh, so you need to be more frugal until you actually uh, pay that back. And, and the third thing, of course, is that some people have taken a wealth hit um, you know, in terms of their 401k or whatever investments they actually had. You put that together and you, um, you basically... Uh, make the case that we're not going back to exactly where we were, but my forecast is that we will see, again, this dramatic decrease in unemployment like we've never seen before. Um, and we will be back to a situation where we can grow, uh, but it's not going to be back to the situation in the fourth quarter of 2019. Got it. For what it's worth, is somebody who's got investments in multiple restaurant organizations, we were talking about it. Our experience is that there will be a step function that occurs between the end of the stay-at-home phase and what I would call phase three or the new normal. And that it's not going to be automatic or on-off, but, but sort of a step phase as you have new therapeutic modality, as you have an, a move from broad horizontal isolation to vertical isolation, and we begin to see people get more comfortable. But at any rate, um, let's go to Charles and, and, and Leslie uh, Marinoff, who I think have a, a question or two from their own. And we've got time for, for probably two more questions. Charles and Leslie, still uh, on and still appropriate? Unmute, please. So I'm curious. I, I see a lot about, I see a lot of people tracking um, the life toll from the virus. I'm wondering if there's anyone who's tracking the economic ramifications. I've seen numbers posted such as for every percent unemployment increases, 1,500 people die. I'm wondering if that number is similar to this situation or is it unusual because it is so highly unusual. Um, I'm really just wondering who is keeping an eye on that as everyone's focus seems to be over on the virus. Yeah, so, uh Great question, and I don't have the actual numbers, but I'm gonna comment on uh, this idea because I've actually already mentioned it, that the economic cost is not just um, the sudden stop to our economy, the lockdown, it's not just uh, a hit in GDP, it actually causes health issues also, and I specifically mentioned mental health. So we've got plenty of evidence from previous recessions that uh, when you lose your job, that's really bad news, right? It's traumatic. And uh, in the global financial crisis, it was particularly difficult uh, because it just went on forever. So the, the crisis uh, technically was over 
in uh, September 2009, yet unemployment continued to increase. So the peak in unemployment was in 2010. So we didn't even know that the recession was over. And again, when you're unemployed for a long period of time, uh, the toll is very substantial. So yes, you can actually do the math on this and um, figure out the average number of, of deaths that you could um, reasonably attribute to a recession. However, I don't think it's appropriate to use that for this one. And let me tell you why. So again, previously I mentioned this idea in the global financial crisis, you lost your job at uh, you know, Lehman Brothers. You face a long um, unemployment bout. Whereas in this uh, recession, we use the word furlough. So furlough basically means, well, um, I've been furloughed for three months. That's what I was told. And maybe um, there's a chance to come back earlier, but I'm going back. And, and the expectation is that you're going to go back. So it's not that you have to go uh, find a new job. And that's why it's essential that our policymakers um, give lifelines um, to some of these companies that will be able to essentially restart, like uh, um, you know, some retail, uh, for example, or bars or restaurants. So, so I think that it's different this time, given that, and this is really important for the psychology of this also, in the global financial crisis, I said multiple times, we just didn't know when it was going to end. And uh, people have, have talked about this recession looking like the Great Depression uh, in terms of the numbers we're seeing. So we could have 25% unemployment. And that's what we had in the Great Depression. In the global financial crisis, the maximum unemployment was 10.6%. The drawdown in GDP in the global financial crisis was only 5%. So people say, well, it's like the depression. I said, no, no, because during the depression, it went on and on for a decade. There didn't seem to be any end to it. Whereas this crisis, there's there's light at the end of the tunnel, and it's basically biological. So is the vaccine going to be available in the fourth quarter of 20, first quarter of 21, or the second quarter of 21? And that's it. Okay, so um, the, the vaccine essentially is the all clear for this uh, pandemic. And let me emphasize this pandemic, because we, after this is over, we need to think about this as a fire drill because this is going to happen. Now you're getting uh, negative like many of our other speakers. It's no, better. No, can no, I go I'm positive not being at all. I'm being positive. Can, we can, can I go positive? Yeah. Ask you a question. When we look at the data, when this is done, are we going to see that 50 to 60% of the people who are exposed to this won't know it? or if they get it, they won't feel it, that 20 to 30% of the people, it will be a from a flu to a severe, horrible flu. And we should treat, 10% of the population should treat this like Ebola. And my question for you is, if that's true, is it predetermined by health versus randomness? 
If it's true, why'd we lock up 100% of the people? Why didn't we just lock up the 10% of the people and let the other 90% who won't know it or just get a flu, allow them to work and not ruin the economy? Why is this smart? And that's going to have to be our last question because we're really pushing the limit. Yeah, it, it's it's a great question. And again, you've got limited data at the beginning on this. You see this exponential growth. We knew right from the beginning that there was a different fatality rate based upon uh, certain characteristics like age, pre-existing uh, conditions and stuff like that. Um, look, uh, once we've got the testing, then it also changes the game where we can be um, as, as essentially anybody that's got anybody should be back at work, right? So it's really clear, um, but we don't have the testing right now. So your idea is uh, in theory, exactly uh, what we should do, but it relies upon testing. We don't have the tests, uh, but we will have the tests. So it's just a matter of time. And again, this is another reason that I'm optimistic about the fall. People realize this, the policymakers realize this, and we uh, are seeing the beginning of it. We will have widespread testing, and essentially we need a strategy where we protect the most vulnerable um, in our population, but we don't shackle those that have no reason uh, to be isolated, uh, the ones with antibodies um, especially. And I, I think that that's uh, exactly where we're going. This crisis allows us to see the future through the experiences of countries that were hit before the United States, like China, South Korea, and Sweden, and to consider their approaches in determining our own. According to Dr. Harvey, different parts of the country will have to draw different lessons from abroad that cater to individual demographics, densities, ages, and risk levels. He also explains that while his original economic forecast for the rest of the year was bleak, he thinks the public's lockdown fatigue may encourage economic growth to pick up more quickly. He also thinks more good news on creating a vaccine could really accelerate that growth. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. <laughs>